Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. It's been a tumultuous week, one that's both threatened democracy and that has laid bare the soul of the country. Amid the chaos, two things are clear. The nation is facing a fragile future, and the whole world is watching what happens next. Our democracy is under an unprecedented assault. Where do we go from here? It's a question we ask ourselves now, and it's a question we asked seven months ago at another perilous time in our history. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, who died when a police officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes, demonstrations erupted and our attention was focused on double standards for policing communities of color. Double standards that still exist. So as we start our year, we pause to reflect on what's changed and what needs to change. I can't breathe. Hands up, don't shoot. Black Lives Matter. Say their names. 846. These are the cries of anguish, calling out for an end to racism, police brutality, and injustice, reverberating across the country and around the world. At 22 years old, Bakari Sellers made history as the youngest elected official in the South Carolina State Legislature and the youngest black elected official in the country. Well, now he's a political commentator, lawyer, and author at the ripe old age of 35. But his new memoir, My Vanishing Country, begins with a story years before he was born. The 1968 Orangeburg Massacre at South Carolina State University, a historically black college. Highway patrolmen opened fire on civil rights protesters who wanted to desegregate a bowling alley. They killed three people, wounded dozens more. One of the wounded was Cleveland Sellers, Bakari's father. He was also sentenced to a year in prison, accused of inciting a riot. He was pardoned decades later. I spoke to Bakari earlier about why he says that day, 16 years before his birth, is the most important day of his life. Bakari Sellers, so nice to talk to you. We've been on panels and had lots of conversations over the years, but never never this conversation. And and you, you talk about your dad's story as as the most important in your life. Why? Uh, on that night in justice, it left mothers without their sons. It left the pages of this country's history stained red with blood. And it left my sister born without her father. Um, my sister was actually born while my father was in prison. And so I, I, my frame of reference and the way that I evaluate things socially, culturally, and politically is as a son of the movement. And that trauma um, from the Orangeburg massacre all the way through the Charleston massacre, it bookends my life. Um, but I think it highlights the pain and trauma of being black in America. You talk about that trauma, not just personally, but how that trauma actually affects lots of black men, black women, black families, their children. I think people don't necessarily understand how trauma kind of moves through generations. Can you explain that? Yes. And I think I think most white folk actually look at race through uh, the lens of their lifetime. And one of the things I try to do in my vanishing country and the way that I've I've learned about looking at races through the context and contours of history. My father got involved in the movement because of Emmett Till in 1955. So you think about Emmett Till and Jimmy Lee Jackson, you think about Medgar Evers, the four little girls in the 16th Street Baptist Church, and you fast forward and you have Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, you have George Floyd. And I think that the biggest 
consternation that I have in my heart is that this is becoming a, a cycle in black America, that we are in a perpetual stage of grief. And I am 35 and my father's 75. Um, and we have many of the same shared experiences and it should not be that way. I would describe feeling exhausted. And I'm curious as a politician, are you feeling optimistic? Are you feeling exhausted? Do you see like, hey, if we just get through this, there's this bright light at the end of the tunnel? Because as you point out, it's going on a long time. So what you're feeling is what Fannie Lou Hamer called, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Um, and that's an age old sage wisdom from black women from ages beyond. You ask a, a good question. This country doesn't give me a whole lot of reason to be optimistic. However, I, I refuse to let people take away my hope and I refuse to let people take away my faith. I'm just as American and love this country uh, the same, if not more than anybody else, because the blood of my family literally runs through the soil of this great country, trying to make it be a more perfect union. Um, and I think about my children all the time, and they do not deserve to grow up in a country like this, one in which there is a large segment of the population that does not give them the benefit of their humanity. I may not yet be jaded by reality in my 35 years of great wisdom, <laughs> but uh, you know, I still believe in words like hope and love and truth and justice and peace. I think that's necessary to maintain some sanity and hope in this country. I am often asked, and I actually know every single black person that I know, and I'm sure you as well, are asked by white people, what do I do? Help me. T tell me. You know, and I know hashtag Black Lives Matter is not enough. And what, what advice do you give people who would like to actually do something and not just post something hopeful on Instagram? My first caveat is that it's not on black people to cure racism in this country. I think that's important for people to know. But I want, I want white folks to protest with us, to get out in the streets with us, because those visuals, white, black, blue, brown, yellow, pink, et cetera, are really good for the country to see that's healing. And the most important thing you have to do is talk to some of your racist friends, right? Like, you, they may not know that they're racist. There may be blind spots. But in this country, Soledad, this is the most important thing for viewers to understand. In this country, you can either be racist or anti-racist. Those are the only two choices we have. You cannot sit on the sofa and just say, I'm not racist, but. No, you have to actively root out the scourge and cancer of racism in this country. That's what this moment requires. Bakari Sellers, always nice to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up next. The tallest officer, he tells me, are you some type of tough guy? When I turn around, he punches me in the face and he screams, he's resisting arrest. I'm scared for my kids. Every time they step out the door. And who are you scared of? The police. In the 31 years that I've been a journalist, I've reported on too many deaths like George Floyd's. In 2008, I embarked on a series called Black in America, followed in 2014 by a documentary called Black and Blue about aggressive police practices and its impact on African-Americans. Keyshawn Harley has never been in legal trouble, but he says police have stopped him more than 100 times. I first got stopped in Fisk when I was 13. They say I fit a description. That's, I would say nine times out of 10, the excuse they give me. What's the description? A young black male, 18 to 25. I've been stopped over 100 times. It does all blur together at some point, but there are those extreme instances where it's kind of hard to forget. Keyshan is a sophomore in college. 
He lives with his mother, Safiya. I'm just coming home from school, and a cop slams me against the wall, arm behind my back, throws stuff out my bag. He's calling me derogatory terms. It's like, And he doesn't even let me pull out my wallet to show him who I am, show him I go to the school right here. It messes with you psychologically. It messes with you emotionally. It's scary. I don't sleep until he comes home, quite frankly. And I know he is not in cuffs or in anybody's morgue. You were okay this weekend when you went out? You didn't end up in a cop car for an hour like you didn't tell me about last time? No, I didn't. The fact that it happens just about every single day is overwhelming and can lead you to lose your head. But then your future ends. It's hard to stay calm when you got somebody slamming your face against the wall. What's the alternative, baby? I, I I'm always I'm about always the, alternative. What's What's the, the alternative. alternative. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? You gonna punch the cop gonna... back? I'm not, I'm not gonna punch the cop back, but it's just like, you want me to stay calm, like... I do. How am I supposed to stay calm when that's happening? Because that's what I'm you do. Stay calm the same way, the same the way Martin and them stayed calm when dogs was biting them. The same way he had to stay calm when his house was being set on fire. Dr. Rayshawn Ray is a sociologist and David Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He conducts implicit bias training for police departments, writes about policing in America. Dr. Rayshawn Ray, thank you for talking with me. Is it as simple as a generational divide where people who are of the older generation talk about Malcolm and they talk about um, MLK and people who are younger say, you know what, that hasn't worked, that, that they need a new strategy. As I look at Keyshawn's story, and I think about the similarities, that I have a little cousin named Keyshawn, who is around the same age that Keyshawn was in that particular segment. And he had been stopped over 100 times. And I also think about Keyshawn's mother's health and how research highlights that women, particularly Black women, oftentimes have to deal with the collateral damages that are left over from police violence. But what I think that it highlights from a generational perspective is that I hear a lot of young people saying, that I am not my ancestors, sincerely these hands. That is a slogan that I see on social media a lot. And MLK, even though he was obviously for nonviolence, he understood that riots meant something, that it means that when people have tried to kneel, when people have tried to sit peacefully, like Colin Kaepernick, kneeling on, on one knee and not saying anything, that they are vilified for it. So people then end up speaking up and speaking out, and they're expressing that anger because they're hurt. What do the protesters, what do they want? And how do you, how do you bridge that gap between what they say they want and what exists right now? I think for a lot of people, they wanted to see all of the officers charged. That's obviously happened. I think another group of people actually want to see police departments uh, defunded. I think there are other people who want to see the militaristic ways that law enforcement has become. They want to see that separation. So people have very specific goals. Two things make this pro make these protests different, though. First is the racial diversity of these protests. We haven't seen that when it comes to these movements that's related to Black Lives Matter. I think that's a good thing. A stat that highlights that is that over 50% of white people now say that these incidents, like the one we see with George Floyd, is part of something bigger. That something bigger is structural racism. People clearly want change, but policy change generally is incredibly slow. So the research that I've done from a policy perspective shows that we're in a moment that we call a policy window. 
That is where we have an opportunity to make change on an issue. And I tend to think that that change in policing is going to be a comprehensive data reporting system at the federal level to know how many people are killed by police. I think that's going to be federal legislation to ensure that officers terminated for police misconduct and not work again. And then I also think that it's going to be a lot of adoption at the state and local level to make a shift in the way these civilian payouts are done, because that is something that taxpayers can demand. That is our money. We pay police officers salaries. They are supposed to protect, serve, and create the peace, and instead not create more racial disparities in the middle of a pandemic. Dr. Ray Sean Ray, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up, as COVID-19 races through this rural town, can healthcare workers gain the trust of its residents? We're not here to deport you. As the country confronts a racial crisis, a reminder that our health crisis, which disproportionately affects vulnerable and minority communities, remains a threat. In May, correspondent Jessica Gomez visited Immokalee, Florida, America's tomato capital. The town is roughly 25,000 people, mostly migrant workers, living below the poverty level. As COVID cases spread around them, they kept working. Quite simply, they can't afford to get sick. Okay, take a deep breath. Let go. Two weeks after being diagnosed with the coronavirus, Eloy Answalda is back for another test. Shortening the breath and that nasty cough that comes along with it, it's, uh, it's not, not a nice feeling. A crew leader at a tomato farm, Answalda is anxious to get back to work. With no sick leave, the days without pay are adding up. I've been doing this for over 30 years now, so it's time to go to work. For farm workers here in Immokalee, Florida, the day begins early, boarding crowded buses that head to farm fields across the region. There, many spend long, hot days, harvesting the majority of the nation's winter tomatoes. Deemed essential during the pandemic, their work never stopped, and the virus, while slow to crop up here, is now spreading. Right now, over the last few weeks, we're seeing a, a significant increase. Muy buenas tardes, muy buenas tardes. For weeks now, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, a nonprofit group dedicated to protecting farm workers, has been sounding the alarm about COVID-19 and asking the state for more help. Immokalee, uh, it's like dry tinder on the path of a wildfire. COVID-19 is that wildfire and there, there's the need to move fast. This is your part in reducing the spread of coronavirus. Sheriff's Department vans getting the message out in English, Creole, and Spanish. And some area farms have set up hand-washing stations around town. The coalition says it's not enough. All the recommendations that come out, those are things that make no sense when you're a farm worker. Many here are migrants on temporary visas or they're undocumented with no paid sick leave and little access to health care. Diocili Salazar helping her migrant parents while home from college. People can't get sick here. You have to work. If you don't work, then you, how are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to feed your kids? For those who do get sick, isolating here is difficult. Many live in crowded housing with other farm workers. 
Only a handful of the hundreds in Immokalee who've tested positive have used the state's free non-congregate housing. It's more than 40 miles away. We know that some people are scared and they won't want to leave their particular area. At the request of the coalition, Doctors Without Borders now on the ground in Immokalee. It's rare that the humanitarian organization works on U.S. soil. The idea that you can get tested within walking distance of your home, where somebody speaks your language, really alleviates a lot of the, the, the fear, helps educate people, decreases the stigma. But until now, there were not enough tests to go around. With help from Doctors Without Borders, the Florida Department of Health just this week announcing regular testing will begin for anyone who wants one, symptoms or not. By the end of May, fewer than 10% of people here had been tested, and not before thousands more migrant farm workers left Immokalee following harvesting jobs in northern states. If there are no workers in the fields because uh, people get sick in, in all of these farms, then who's going to produce the food? And the impact of the virus spreading any further likely to be felt far beyond the Sunshine State. In Immokalee, Florida, for Matter of Fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Still ahead, who polices the police? Welcome back to Matter of Fact. So who polices the police? We wanted to take a look at a legal rule known as qualified immunity. The Supreme Court created this doctrine 40 years ago, and critics say it shields police and government officials from accountability. Supporters say it protects an officer's ability to make a snap decision during a potentially dangerous situation. Qualified immunity sets a high bar in civil cases when victims or their families try to sue for a violation of civil rights. But even convicting officers on criminal charges is an exception, not the rule. There's no comprehensive official database to track police violence. But one research group called Mapping Police Violence reports police intentionally or accidentally kill 1,000 civilians each year. Between 2005 and 2019, only three officers were found guilty of murder and saw their conviction stand. Please join us next week as we look ahead to the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the issues they'll confront as they take office. Before we go, we invite you to check out our special project, The Listening Tour, The Hard Truth About Bias. It's a starting point for discussions about racial justice in 2021. You'll find it on our website, matteroffact.tv. I'm Soledad O'Brien. We'll see you back here next week for Matter of Fact. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts and Spotify.